This is The Antidote by Amani. Welcome to The Antidote, the new culture and politics podcast for millennials and Gen Z, where we search for the cure to today's viral social issues. And right now, we're trying to make the 2020 elections make sense with none other than NBC host Ayman Mohyadin. Ayman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I mean, we're literally connecting right now during possibly one. I mean, now things are starting to settle down. We're trying we're starting to see where the chips are are falling. Um, But we are really connecting during still right in the midst of a lot of the upheaval of the elections right now. I'm literally recording this out of a hotel lobby right now. I'm out in Florida. I've been out here for the past week because of the elections. So we're doing the podcast. What were you doing? (laughs) What were you doing Um, in Florida? Some last minute outreach to the community out here. Uh, Muslim South Asian youth, you know, doing putting in some work for the Biden camp. Um, nice. Even though it would have taken like the jaws of life to flip Florida red, the, uh, blue this year, but we did the best that yeah. we could. <laughs> to be honest, the counting has gone on much longer than I personally anticipated. I don't know if that was naive of me, but what do you think about the way things have been unfolding so far? Surprisingly, it's actually going as anticipated in the sense of the timing. Maybe I was just a lot more plugged into it just because we had been building it up so much as an election season and that the votes would take several days, perhaps even weeks to ultimately be counted. So for me, just because I was reporting on it every day and we were hearing from officials and uh, all the pundits and even the people from the campaign were saying we weren't going to expect a result on November 3rd, that I kind of anticipated. But I will say that even though that was the case, there were people who you know, were, I guess, wishful thinking that everything would be done by uh, you know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m. on Tuesday in some of these key battleground states like Florida, Georgia, elsewhere, that a decision could have been made. But the reality of it is uh, we kind of knew early on that the way the pattern of vote tabulation emerged, which was a, you know, a part on mail-in ballots and a part on same day, that this was going to be a process that overtakes uh, at least a couple of days. Yeah, I, I will admit that I definitely thought that on election night, late in the night, we would at least have an idea of right. where it was going to land. When it comes to the counting, do you think that the fact that it has been taking so long is indicative of the fact that we our democracy is working or like, is this a good thing that it's taking this long? Oh, yes and no. I mean, the, the short answer is yes, it's, it's good that it's taking this long within the context of America's system because it is such a decentralized system. It's at a state level. States, you know, run their own elections. Sometimes counties have different rules. So everything is really so decentralized that I can understand why it is taking this long. Now, the second part of that question is, does it have to be that way? And that's a whole other kind of philosophical debate. Can you standardize? Can you nationalize the process? Can you federalize the voting process so that it's done quickly? It's done in a uniform fashion. There aren't these kind of like ambiguous rules from state to state. And that's a whole other debate. You know, I leave that for like the political experts. But given where America is and how America generally conducts its elections, then yes, I think it's a good thing that it is taking this long. 
they're taking their time. They're being diligent. The officials are assuring the public, you know, there's live streaming of the of the vote counting. Observers are present in all of the vote counting facilities for the most part. Uh, and I think it's a fairly rigorous process. It's subject to a lot of review. It's subject to a lot of transparency. And I think that should give Americans the confidence that it's being done uh, quickly, but at the same time, correctly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so for context, for those that are listening, we are recording this podcast on Friday evening, the evening of November 6th. So today's is officially day four of the 2020 elections. We're now entering into um, the fourth night, the fifth night at this point. Um, I've lost track, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's real. It's literally, it's been like election month for us right now. Um, yeah. And as it stands currently, uh, we have Joe Biden at 264 electoral points, Donald Trump at 214. Um, so it hasn't, the race hasn't been called yet. And I mean, I mean, can you kind of like fill us in on where we're at right now? I'm kind of expecting that there's going to be a ton of recounts probably and, and maybe more waiting that is still to go before we can really move forward, move forward here. Or do you think that it's going to happen quicker than that? Um, you know, it, it's really hard to speculate about uh, when a decision might be made about a certain state. I mean, I certainly am not in a position to do that because of the way vote counts are tabulated. It's important uh, to keep in mind there's certain, certain thresholds that have to be met for a decision about a specific race to be made. So I just it's not my place to talk about that. There's an entire team of experts who who just study that and are you know proficient in those numbers. What I can tell you just from what we've been reporting on the air um, is that in I think I believe there are now the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, and Nevada and Alaska. So six states in total that have yet to be decided one way or the other. Uh, in four of those states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, uh, the last I checked, Joe Biden had a lead in those states. And so at it, as it stands, you mentioned the latest electoral vote count. I believe it is uh, 214 for President Trump, 253 for, for former Vice President Joe Biden, at least by NBC News' standards. Mm. And as of now, uh, that's where the race stands with decisions expected as those votes continue. But there's no guarantee. Um, you talked about recounts. Uh, I believe the secretary of state in Georgia said it is most likely there will be a recount in that because of how narrow of a margin it is between the two candidates. I believe the Trump campaign is going to ask for a recount in the state of Wisconsin. So I, I anticipate that there will be some recounts in addition to, as we've already seen, some legal challenges from the Trump campaign. Um, that may uh, delay a decision or may compel a decision to take time. We'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. I mean, before we even get into those breakdowns, because I'm really, really curious about your impression of everything. I mean, I mean, you and I go way back because, I mean, you are one of the very few figures that I encountered in the journalism space that's really diversifying the people that we see out there representing the stories that are coming out of our communities and also just really what is happening through a lens other than, um, you know, just the kind of like the, the typical biases that we see in the media these days. And I'm sure you've been having a crazy, crazy week with everything that's going on. It's been an especially emotional week for me to see how 
in many of these counties where the vote has been contentious, it's been coming down to communities of color that have been the ones mobilizing and really making the difference this year in the elections. Um, and I'm just wondering how that experience has been like for you in this moment of in history, you know, chronicling and reporting on everything that's happening, especially with an, an election cycle that's as unprecedented as this one, to be on the front lines of that, what, what has that experience been like? Uh, you know, I think speaking broadly, anytime a journalist is uh, privileged to witness history and to witness democracy in action in any capacity, is it's a, it's such an extremely humbling uh, feeling, uh, and you're always in awe of what you're witnessing and the the force of people and the just the sheer will of those who participated in this, the engagement, the outreach, the number of people who voted. I think it just um, inspires anybody who has to, for the sake of a profession, observe it, report on it, document it, analyze it. It's such an inspiring experience. Uh, there's no doubt that it's also very complex. It raises all kinds of questions about the identity of this country, about the challenges ahead of it, about uh, the problems. It exposes so many of our vulnerabilities, so many of our weaknesses, some of our warts as a society and as a country. And so it's just such a, it's a whole mixed bag of emotions when you're trying to cover it because you're also an American, you also live in this country, you, you have a stake in this country, you have a stake in the future of this country. Um, and so you try to be as honest and truthful and as objective uh, to what you can offer the broader conversation, if you will, that the country's participating in. And I think, you know, I don't take that responsibility lightly. It weighs on me very heavily in everything I say and everything I do. Um, and at the same time, it's also just very humbling to be a witness to it and, and to be a part of it in whatever role I can be for the current people who are watching, but also future generations who will one day look back at this inflection moment in our country and, and say, which way did this country go? 100%. It's, it's been difficult for me to see this moment in any other way. To me, it's just, it's been all unfolding before my eyes retroactively. And I'm watching it through the lens of like the future generation of how they're gonna look back at this. And in that way, what has been your impression of what's been happening so far? You know, like, especially when you're in the midst of everything, looking at everything that has been unfolding, what do you have to say about it? I mean, I think, you know, in, in general terms, without getting into too, too many specifics, like I said, I think there are things that lend itself to being inspired and being in awe of the process of democracy in action. I also worry about where we are as a country and some of the rhetoric that we're hearing coming out from politicians who are undermining that very same message of democracy and message of unity and trying to rush the process or cast doubt on the process or delegitimize the process. And not just the consequences today or tomorrow, but the consequences uh, at perhaps a generation from now. Are we at the beginning of, unfortunately, something worse than what we've seen over the past couple of years? Or are we going to move in the direction of more unity and less division? So my general observation is that we are in an inflection point. This election, as everyone and a lot of people have described it, one of the most in American history. Um, it I think tested and stress tested America's institutions in ways that it has never been before. Um, and I don't think, you know, one of the points that I've repeatedly made is that I don't think this election is going to 
decide who America is. It's going to reveal who America is. And it's going to reveal a big part of when everything was presented to people, what did the voters ultimately choose? What do the candidates represent? What do the candidates symbolize? Was this a referendum purely on the presidency of Donald Trump? Or was there something more powerful in the appeal of the message of Joe Biden? And I think there'll be time to analyze those questions in the coming weeks and months. Um, but it looks like right now that most people interpreted just by the sheer volume of those who turned out and the way that the popular vote has gone, even before we get to the electoral vote, uh, it, a lot of people interpreted this moment as a referendum on the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, as opposed to a specific policy or a specific issue that they were drawn to. Uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. I think that you really put it perfectly in terms of how I think that future generations will look back at this moment. It, it absolutely is the inflection point. To me, it's, it seems to be where we as Americans draw the line uh, of what we stand for, where our morals and values are. And just the fact that it has been this contentious, that it has been this close to call, uh, to me, the fact that we have put up this type of challenge to just a re-election of, you know, the way things are, um, has been an affirmation that people are are awake, they're paying attention, yeah. and, you know, people are, are, are willing to step up and mobilize and get to the polls for the change that they want to see happen. And obviously, you know, this, this turnout alone has been exceptionally historic and has really restored a lot of my faith in where the future of our democratic system is headed. Um, and, and on that note, it's been obviously very hard to ignore the, I mean, I would like to call them temper tantrums of, uh, of the current president regarding what he's referring to as like voter fraud. Um, and, right. I, and so I kind of wanted to ask you, what exactly is this voter fraud that we keep hearing about coming out of the Trump camp? You know, is it legitimate? What, what exactly do we have to be paying attention to? So, you know, I think, first of all, we can just to be very careful with the language. We have not seen any examples of voter fraud. In fact, uh, my colleague Jacob Soboroff confronted one of a, the Republican surrogates, uh, former DNI director Rick uh, Grinnell, who had made this claim that there was some kind of voter fraud that had taken place in Nevada. Um, and he didn't provide any evidence. So let's just be very clear about the language, which is in terms of voter fraud specifically, there's no evidence of voter fraud or substantial voter fraud that would in any way, shape or form undermine the credibility or the legitimacy of the election. I'm saying this on a Friday at around 6 p.m. when we've seen what we've seen so far. Is that gonna likely change? Probably not, but let's just assume that's where it is for this conversation's purposes. In terms of the other questions that you're raising, are there potential legal challenges about specific you know, ballots that were cast, how they may have been cast, and certainly any candidate has the right to challenge and perhaps present evidence to support their claim that there is or there isn't issues with specific ballots. So far, uh, again, there is no evidence to say something on a whole scale level has happened to delegitimize this process. In fact, over the past several days, we've interviewed multiple lawyers and legal experts. Uh, and most of those that we've interviewed said there's really not a very strong leg for President Trump to stand on legally speaking to somehow alter the course of what has been counted and tabulated so far. There may be pockets of uh, procedures and things that may come into question 
Um, and then a lot of that has to do with the historic nature of this particular cycle or in this particular election because it required such a huge number of mail-in ballots because of the pandemic. And as a result, there's definitely going to be either errors or mistakes that happen. And those things will be ultimately adjudicated. The most important thing I think viewers should know and Americans should know is that's already built into the equation. It happens in every election cycle and many elections, whether it's on a local state level or a race or county or municipality, whatever, there's always a process of adjudication that is built into an election. So it's a very part of the normal process in any election, especially one that's close, that there is a review, that in some cases there should be a recount, that there is room for legal challenges and questions to emerge. And that's how the society and the system gets better. But to just come out and say, it's been stolen, it's fake, I won the legal ballots, anything I didn't win is an illegal ballot, that is just nonsense, does not have any legal basis so far for anything that we've seen over the past couple of days. Where is that strategy coming from? Is that just to basically muddle the waters and confuse people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the strategy that President Trump adapted, uh, um, you know, several weeks, if not months ago, as this election emerged that he was trailing in the polls uh, and the pandemic was a reality and was shaping how states were going to carry out these uh, elections. There was concern among the Trump campaign that the mail-in vote was going to favor Joe Biden and not President Trump. And so what you saw was this complete, you know, PR push to try and delegitimize the process of mail-in ballots, how they are counted. There were some legal challenges prior to the actual vote commencing. That was dismissed in a lot of places. In other areas, it was upheld. And, you know, we are where we are because the system functions that way. But at the end of the day, everyone played by the rules that were uh, apparent to all. And we are where we are because, you know, those rules are now being enforced. So you can't come midway and then change and cast down, try to delegitimize the process uh, in a way that undercuts the very fundamental you know, democratic foundation of this country. Totally. That's something that I made sure to ask Congresswoman Ayanna Presley when she was on the podcast a few weeks ago. And one of the questions that I, that I wanted her to answer for us was what we should be cognizant of right now. You know, what are the risks, what we should be paying attention to. And she advised us that it is the interference, the misinformation that's happening on social media that's specifically targeting vulnerable communities that we need to be very wary of. Um, and she basically said, don't take the bait. And I wanna pose this same question to you as a journalist, as a person literally within the media space, what's your advice to those of us that are listening about how we can be uh, you know, more cognizant or be able to side those types of pitfalls or to avoid taking the bait when it comes to a lot of the misinformation or you know, like news or, or unfounded claims that are muddling the water right now? I mean, I think the most important thing for anyone who is, you know, following this story closely and following all these important issues closely is to get their information from reliable and credible sources. And not just to kind of rely on, I'm not saying, oh, you should just rely only on mainstream media, but I do think that you should be, first of all, you should diversify your news source so you're not siloed into just one specific perspective on any given issue. But then in that process of trying to educate yourself, make sure that you're exposing yourself to credible, reliable, verified, and really kind of tested news organizations, individuals, writers, 
and really try to approach it that way as opposed to saying, okay, I found one news outlet that I'm just going to stick with. And then everything else that you're getting is from these like unverified echo chambers that exists on social media. And as we now know, are just rabbit holes for disinformation and, and misinformation. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that advice. I, I totally agree. That's always something, I mean, a little biased myself running an alternative media platform, but one suggestion that I always recommend to people is to go to the source, you know, go to the people yeah. impacted by those conversations and hear from them directly about what's happening. And obviously a lot of research has to go into what is reliable and, you know, what needs to be course corrected. Yeah, and, and, and I don't want to say and make it sound like, oh, you should just read or, or watch corporate media or no, I think you, there is room for alternative media. I just want to make sure that, you know, when people are exposed to alternative sources of media, that they're relying on people who are tested, who are experienced, who are giving you context and who are not just taking you down a rabbit hole of uh, misinformation and disinformation. 100%. Not that you're biased or anything no. by recommending that we only go to the mainstream sources. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I think that we can only be benefited as a society by being yeah. able to make sure that we avoid those silos when they happen. Obviously, social media uh, is very, very, it, it makes it very easy for us to contain ourselves in corners like that. But uh, in moments like these, I think it's necessary for us to see really what where a lot of the sources of that discourse is coming from because not not all information out there is created equal or is should be regarded as such by any means what do you think are the standout victories that we've seen during this election cycle i know that you touched upon a few already and we discussed especially tapping into communities that have been underrepresented in the past one favorite of mine, obviously, that I'm very, very inspired by is the youth voter turnout. I definitely think that young people made it to the polls this year and, and created a lot of noise. Uh, and, and just in general, you, what do you think is, is something that we're going to look back on very positively from this moment? I think one thing is definitely the engagement. I think the fact that, you know, when, uh, when America's future was really on the line, when so much was at stake, you had a record turnout, which shows you that people do still care and ultimately are engaged and recognize the importance of their vote. As you mentioned, I think the turnout, the record turnout among minorities and people of color, a lot of people are already starting to attribute Joe Biden's success in a lot of places like Philadelphia, like Atlanta, to the black vote. And so I think even in more weeks and more times, there'll be more analyses about that and whether or not that actually tests true. And I certainly think the initial indicators are. So there's a lot of you know excitement about that, the work that somebody like Stacey Abrams did in the state of Georgia and getting people out and registered. I think those are things that a lot of people should be proud of because when the democracy functions with large numbers, it's better for the representation in this country. So I do think that part of it is very important. I think so far, again, speaking a few days after the election, it has been relatively calm and peaceful. There's been no instances mm. of violence. And yes, there's a lot of it's tension and anxiety, but the stakes were very high. And I think Americans should take pride that so far, there have been no major instances of violence, given everything that we've gone through this country over the past couple of uh, months. So that's another aspect that I think people should be uh, proud of. You know, and I think there's a lot of like individual, you know, victories on ballots, ballot measures in various states. I mean, one that I particularly found very symbolically important was the state of Mississippi ultimately voting for a new state flag that replaced its flag, the state flag that had uh, images or symbols of the Confederacy. So that no longer exists. And I think the fact that 
Mississippi approved that by a vote speaks to the kind of progress and change that's happening, albeit on a small level, but as I said, a symbolic one. Totally, as are the down ballot ones that we've experienced as well. It seems like this year, people have become a lot more tapped into and aware of the impact of the local elections on our communities as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so that's that is something that makes me very, very optimistic and very hopeful because you know, especially when it comes to the civic engagement in our country, I think that's something that our democracy can absolutely benefit from the improvement of. In the same way, what do you think looking back is going to be the biggest failure or concern about the way the 2020 elections have gone down when we look back at it with 2020 vision, 2020 vision, literally? (laughs) I think there's still a lot of fundamental concerns about voter suppression voter disenfranchisement, certainly election security, misinformation, disinformation. And I think ultimately how we as a country just make voting easier. Like what is the fundamental way? What do you have to do in this country to make it easier for people to vote? How do you make it easier to count the votes? Why are we still in this state where it's so fragmented how different electoral municipalities carry out their elections and not standardize it and uniform it in a, make it uniform in a way that you can get results efficiently. Um, everybody knows what the rules are. There aren't these constant ambiguities and it doesn't vary from state to state and people get registered easily and people aren't getting purged off of voter rolls and things like that. So I think the mechanisms of the vote in this country still need a lot of improvement. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that there are still forces in this country that wanna make it harder for people to vote? Yes, absolutely. One thing that I noticed this time around that, to be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by, uh, maybe more accurately, a little bit shocked by, (laughs) is how level-headed the media seems to have been mainstream news seems to have been this time around i honestly was a little surprised by how careful a lot of networks have been to call things prematurely or to inject any type of inaccurate information in the reporting of the electoral votes Uh, obviously very very different story than 2016 which one of the biggest biggest grievances from that election cycle was the media misrepresentation of you know who was ahead in the polls and how things were looking and it makes me wonder what your impression is of the media's performance this time around of the news networks and how they've been reporting and it makes me curious if that has been a kind of like a concerted effort this time around where everyone was like okay guys we actually have like a really big responsibility this time like let's not f this up again for a second time in a row you know yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, it, it, first of all, we're still in it. So I, I can't tell you kind of like definitive lessons. Yeah, that we've let, let me knock on, uh, on luck. Let me knock on wood nearby real quick. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, I think, you know, in the coming weeks, again, in the months, there'll definitely be a lot of uh, areas where media experts and journalists will look back and say, here's what we could have done differently and could have done better. And we certainly should be and people should hold the media accountable for areas that they can always improve in. But I will say that, you know, this time around, I think people were very weary of what had happened in 2016 with the polls. There was definitely some, you know, concern about whether the polls were going to withstand the kind of tests that had been in place to avoid what happened in 2016. And to be quite honest, I'm not sure that they passed. I I think there's an argument to be made that the polls that showed Joe Biden 
in comfortable leads in states like Florida and North Carolina and Georgia and Wisconsin may ultimately not have materialized. Maybe the national polling worked, maybe it did. We're gonna to have to wait and see again in a couple of weeks, but there's definitely going to be room for improvement. And I think against that backdrop, because we were also participating in an election that was going to have historic number of mail-in ballots, that, that the media has been very cautious to not make any kind of projection or calls until they have a certain degree of certainty about the numbers and not only that, but the type of votes not just the number of votes. I think that's a new factor in the equation. The type of votes is something that was new in 2020 than in previous elections. It may, yeah. may have existed, but certainly not in these quantities. So there's going to be room for a lot of, you know, uh, post-election analysis and, you know, self-introspection. 100%. I mean, maybe... Hopefully there's no coming back from this when it comes to utilizing the different types of votes that we have access to, because clearly it's it's resulted in a lot more empowerment yeah. for people to be able to get their voices represented. So yeah. there's always a silver lining, even though COVID has obviously presented crazy challenges and barriers to the election cycle this time around. Right. I do think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it as well. Yeah. Well, now that we are kind of all just holding our breath as a country for us yeah. to finally seal the deal and move forward, move forward from this moment in time and really just turn the page on this new chapter, there, of course, has been a lot of talk, as there has been for the past few weeks, and as we've discussed with a few, uh, a few of our guests as well, of this idea of a peaceful transition of power. And obviously already right now, as we speak, there have been a number of speeches that have come out of Trump's camp that have indicated as even before election day, that if things don't go a certain way, that peaceful transition might be at risk. And I'm wondering your impression of that from what you've seen or what you know, what your insights are, if that is something to be concerned about. And if so, what what would be the biggest risk facing us to be able to go into this next chapter as a country? I mean, it's, again, it's hard for me to kind of speculate about that. You know, I could tell you that it seems from some of the initial reporting that where we are right now as a country, given the president's nature, I think that given who the president is and given what we've heard from him in the past, there's reporting to suggest there are concerns about whether at the very least he'll participate in the symbolic uh, gestures of a peaceful transfer of power. You know, there's the historic limousine ride. They ride to the steps to the, of the Capitol together from the White House, the outgoing and incoming president. And it shows America is united and that this transition of power will happen peacefully. So there is some question as to whether or not that'll happen. I was interviewing Ted Lieu, uh, or apologize, I believe Chris Lou, who was the former head of the Obama transition team in 2008. And, you know, he was telling me that in theory, the incoming administration does not necessarily have to have the cooperation of the outgoing one because so much of this happens on a bureaucratic level. And so it doesn't necessarily require President Trump himself to be involved, should that be the need. But at the end of the day, it's just part of the norms of American politics and culture that it would be a huge disappointment if visually that's not seen. But in terms of actual disruption or violence or the transition itself, I mean, there are experts out there who know this better than I do, but as I said, he and he was one of them, he was saying that the transition could physically happen without the specific cooperation of, of President Trump, if, you know, God forbid it got to that point. Yeah, I mean, people are already using words like coup 
and throwing that around. It's kind of like you'd never really expect to hear that in the United States of right. America. But I mean, this is an, this is an unprecedented election in many yeah. ways. So I mean, I could literally talk to you about this forever, but I know, of course, you have your work cut out for you this week. And so I do want to kind of bring this uh, conversation to possibly, hopefully, a, a productive conclusion for those of us that are holding our breaths and kind of hung in the balance here. I'm curious right now in this moment with where we're at, what is at the top of your mind politically? I think politically for me, the it's really about the next 90 days about, first of all, without a doubt, it's about the conclusion of the election in a clear, definitive way that gives Americans confidence in the process, gives Americans confidence in the outcome. Even if there's disagreements about policy, it does not lend itself to disagreements about the process and the democracy, because that's really where the serious fracture happens. There'll always be disagreements about policy, but if you start to question the process, then you alienate people and then the alienation leads to resentment and the resentment leads to other problems. So I, I certainly hope that we do not experience that as a country given what happens in the next couple of weeks in terms of an outcome. And then beyond that, I think when Joe Biden does make a decision one way or the other about the outcome, if Joe Biden is the president elect and ultimately is sworn in, that the challenges this country faces, regardless of whether it is Joe Biden or President Trump, trying to address the issue of the pandemic, how to get the country united, how to address the economic grievances, um, try to restore America's standing overseas, address the climate change threat. So there's so many issues that I think Americans want genuine answers to. And again, regardless of the outcome, just hope that whoever the next president is addresses them in a serious, timely, committed fashion. So is that the antidote that America needs right now is more transparency from the Oval? It definitely needs more transparency from government on every level so that they can feel confident in the outcome of this process. And I think going forward, it needs participation. It needs to be a two-way street. I mean, generally Americans, they'll engage now, you know, every four years they'll participate, maybe every two years in a midterm by less numbers. But you can't take your foot off the pedal. You have to be engaged in between these election cycles. You have to organize. You have to uh, participate. You have to uh, lobby. You have to make your voice heard one way or the other and keep these issues at the forefront of politicians' minds so that they don't just fall by the wayside and then turn around in two years' time and four years' time and just pander to you for your vote. Amazing. Well, Ayman Mahideen, thank you so much for joining us on The Antidote. And we'll see you on the next episode as America awaits the biggest decision of our generation right now. So thank you so much thank for joining you so us, Ayman. I really appreciate You're your time welcome. here. You're very welcome.